Normally I would talk about John as I have been doing this ongoing series for a long time, but uh, since we started this topic of men and women in the Bible and what we can learn from that, uh, Malcolm asked me to talk about Deborah and Barak today. And uh, being on holiday this week, it seems like Malcolm kind of uh, prepared, prepared the way for me and uh, put a little write-up in the Watford Word uh, in the newsletter about Deborah and Barak. So there's a summary there with some key points. And he sent it out, uh, I think, yesterday on WhatsApp to everybody. And I assume being good church citizens, you all read it already. And uh, all that's left for me today is to say, are there any questions? <laughs> no? no? Okay, final song. Who's doing the communion, doing the communion prayer? <laughs> no? No questions? Okay, I guess we can, <laughs> we can move along then. Right, so, um, I mean, that's a really good summary that, uh, that Malcolm made there. I came to more or less the same conclusions, covered some of the same points, but I thought, okay, let me add a, add a little bit to that um, and see if we can feed our hearts, souls, and minds this morning from the story of Deborah and, uh, and, and, and Barak. And um, Deborah, a prophetess, judge, and Barak, the general, there's some uh, graphics there from the story and so on, which we'll come back to. And this covers the, the book of Judges, chapters 4 and 5. But before we get into the specific story of, of, of uh, Deborah and Barak, um, Quick summary to understand, if you haven't read the story, who are the main characters in the story? So there is, uh, first of all, there's Deborah, which means the bee. And she's got quite a sting, as we'll see, this bee. She was a leader, she was a judge, she was a prophetess. Then there is Barak, um, another Israelite. His name means lightning, very fitting for someone who is a commander of the Israelite army. Then there is Sisera. His name means ready for battle, a very fitting name again for the commander of the Canaanite army of King Jabin. Then there is uh, Jabin, who is actually not a name, but a title for a Canaanite king, a title like Pharaoh or Caesar is a title. So, um, so Jabin is actually his, his title rather than his name. And then we have Jael, which means to ascend. She was the, this is quite interesting, uh, she was the wife of Heber, a Canaanite. She was descended, or her husband was descended from the father-in-law of Moses. So she was a Gentile, she was not a Jew, although she lived in Israel at the time. So if you know the history of Moses, Moses actually married an Egyptian woman. Um, so she may have been Egyptian. So that's Jael. And then there's Sisera's mother which I will come back to a little bit later um, as, a, as a kind of a, a side character in the story. So these are the main characters uh, that we're going to discover today in the story. Right, so very important, context. When we read a story like this, you know, it can be very dry. I don't know, who, who here likes history? Likes, oh, there's a few number who likes history. Okay, maybe you, for you it won't be that dry. <laughs> It is really interesting. I never liked history. At school, I absolutely hated it. I found it boring. I had to memorize all these facts, and it always got the dates wrong. And I mean, I still can't remember you know, my kids' birthdays. Always have to calculate it. And when was it again? Is it 96, 97? I have to work it. Oh, just the dates, all the dates confuse me and everything. And, it, and it's really interesting. It's only when I became a Christian that I started taking an interest in history. 
because I started reading about all these things that happened around Christianity and what, who were these Romans that crucified Jesus and, and what were, and I started reading and suddenly history got meaning for me when, I, when it got context and it fitted in with the values that I was exploring and trying to understand and it fitted in with my faith and I got really interested in, in history. And we, if we go to the book of Judges, uh, you know, it is basically a history book. And you can read it and think, oh, this is boring, uh, you know, some boring old history stories. But it's also, uh, everything in the Bible is there for a reason. And if we go through the book of Judges, we'll see that, you know, there's a lot of lessons in there. So very important context. What is the context of the book of Judges? So who knows, what is the previous book in the Bible that came before Judges? Joshua. Joshua, yes. And what happened in Joshua? What is the story of Joshua about? Had a nice coat. No, that's Joseph. <laughs> I don't know, maybe Joshua had a nice coat. We wouldn't know. But, uh, <laughs> but we certainly know Joseph had a nice coat. Yeah, so Joshua took the Israelites into the promised land. So here's the story. The, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. God freed them, freed them from the slavery, from Pharaoh, and he took them to the promised land. And then when they were on the border of the promised land, God told Moses, you're not going to go into the promised land. But his faithful right-hand man, leader Joshua, was the one who led the Israelites into the promised land. Only problem was, the promised land was not empty. It was occupied by various other nations. So they had to fight a variety of battles to, to reclaim the land that was originally belonged to Abraham and promised to Abraham. And when Abraham was absent was kind of, you know, other people came and occupied it. So Joshua, the book of Joshua, is about that, all those battles to, to conquer the promised land, for the Israelites to resettle in that land. So that ends the story, the end of that conquest, where all the tribes got their pieces, 12 tribes, and everyone got their piece of, of the promised land of Israel. That's where Joshua ends. It's like, an, okay, mission accomplished. And that's where the book of Judges then starts. So Joshua, he led the conquest of the land. And then what happened after that? In Judges chapter 2, it tells us what this book of Judges is about. In verse 6, it says, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So these were people who saw the miracles of going through the sea when they left uh, Egypt. They saw the, 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 the 12 plagues in Egypt, how God protected them in the journeys through the desert. They saw uh, water coming from the rock. They saw the manna, where how God provided food for them in the desert. They saw all the miracles of, of how God supported them in this journey and in getting their land back. So... These people had seen all these things and they served the Lord. They were faithful to God because of that. We skip forward to verse 10, however. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So here's the first thing. You know, when we... When we reach for these Old Testament history books, they can be useful in a, in a, in a number of ways. You know, when you're a preacher 
and you want to do a leadership lesson for some leaders, you know, it's always handy to read, reach for judges because it's all about leaders and, you know, what can we learn as leaders and how to be a good leader. It's like very handy. Um, we can reach for these, you know, when you're an evangelist and you want to kind of rally the troops and uh, get the congregations, uh, you know, kind of uh, raised up and roused up and, and uh, hoo-ha, let's go and conquer the world and, you know, spread the gospel. It's handy to reach for the history books and, and talk about conquest and overcoming evil and, you know, these nice stories. But an important lesson here, I think, for every, every one of us, for all of us, is I notice here that those who saw the miracles remained faithful. And in the next generation... They didn't see the miracles, and it wasn't good enough for them. And if our faith is built on seeing the miracles, then our faith is on shaky ground. Because that next generation, it wasn't good enough for them to just hear the stories of their fathers and still believe. They didn't see the miracles, they didn't see all the things that God done, so they stopped believing. And that is a challenge for our faith. In fact, the New Testament commends the Christians of our generations. And it says, you know what? We have not seen any of those things, yet we believe. That's in the beginning of, of the letter of John. It says, you have not seen him, yet you believe in him. And that is our challenge as well. I mean, it is commendable to have faith without seeing the miracles, where our faith is basically built on the trust in the history that, that we read in the Bible, but also to convey that faith to others and to the next generation, to our children and to our children's children. That is the big challenge for us as, as parents, for example, is to, is to perpetuate that faith without some kind of miracle to wake people up and show them. It's like, oh, wow. You know, it's, it's easy to believe if God appears to you, like Paul. You know? And I'm not downgrading Paul's faith. By him, you know, but if you've seen Jesus you know, appear to you, you pretty much don't have a choice. It's like, oh man, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm convinced. But that's what happened. Generation after generation, they lost faith because they didn't see the miracles. So, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Um, other things that's very important in judges in terms of context is the hermeneutic. In our previous midweek class, the two Wednesdays ago, uh, Malcolm did a great class on hermeneutics, which is how we read the Bible, how do we interpret it? Which pair of glasses do we put on when we read a passage in the scriptures? So, for example, for me, I have two different eyes. I've got uh, artificial lenses in both eyes. I had cataracts, and uh, so they took the cataracts out and put artificial lenses in. And then I read up on it and I realized, oh, this is actually quite a handy thing you can do here. So when you go for these operations, they say, do you want... Um, it's fixed lenses. So they say, do you want to be able to read and then have glasses for looking at the distance? Or do you want to be able to see at the distance and then need glasses for reading and computer work? So you kind of have to make this choice. I was like, oh, that's a tough choice, man. Can I, can I have both? And then I realized, oh, you can. So when I close my left eye, <laughs> my right eye, I can read that, context hermeneutic. And if I close my right eye, I can't read that. But with my left eye, I can read all this. So, and that's why you're so confused. That's why I'm so confused, Bill. Yes, exactly. So. 
But it's like, okay, you know, that is bit, that's what hermeneutic is like. Okay, what glasses do we read the scripture through the text? What glasses do we put on to, to make it clear what we're reading? That's hermeneutic. So if I'm, do I lead, read with my left eye or with my right eye? So what's important? Chapter 4 and chapter 5 in Judges tells exactly the same story. It's quite interesting, but it's kind of repeated. Chapter 4 is prose, so it's a, it's, it's a history story. Chapter 5 is poetry. It's written in a completely different style. And it's important that we put on the right glasses when we read that. If we read chapter 4, that we read it, okay, this is prose. And if we read chapter 5, that we don't think about, oh, this is literal, and it's like history, and it's prose, it's a story. No, it's poetry. And we need to put our poetry glasses on when we read chapter 5. So, first point about hermeneutic. Second thing about, uh, about reading chapter 5, which is poetry, is this, this apocalyptic language. If we read this literally, it's going to be very confusing. And it's like, what is he saying here? For example, uh, in verse 4 or 5, it says, When you, Lord, went out from Seher, when you marched from the land of Edom. So, did God march with an army? Uh, in verse 4, the earth shook, the heavens poured. In verse 5, the mountains quaked before the Lord. Now he's describing the battle here between the Israelites and the, uh, the army of, um, uh, of Sisera and the Canaanites and the army of Barak, the Israelites. He's describing this battle, but using these terms like earthquakes and the mountain, the earth shook and the, the, the heavens poured down. Uh, in verse 19, he says, kings came, they fought the kings of Canaan, fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. I'll come back to that now. They took no plunder of silver. From the heavens, the stars fought from, the, from their courses, they fought against Sisera. So the stars were fighting from the heavens? Like, and what is going on here? No, it's poetry. So this kind of language is called apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic, like in Apocalypse which means revelation. It's revelation language, prophetic language. And we find a lot of this language in the book of Revelation, which is also called the Apocalypse, uh, right at the end of the Bible. You'll see it's full of this type of language. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's poetry. And we need to put on our poetry glasses when we read it. There's even some links here, which I'm not going to go into all the detail right now, but it's a bit like a prophecy. The waters of Megiddo, Megiddo is the Hebrew name, of what in Revelation is called Armageddon. It's the same place. It's the place of the final battle between good and evil. So all of this wrapped up gives you an, uh, some useful context as well to how to read Revelation, for example. These are all things are all connected, apocalyptic language. And then the last thing about context hermeneutic, uh, some of it is useful for apologetic, meaning defending our faith. And I'm just going to mention shortly here, the mother of Sisera. If you go and read chapter 5, verse 30, it talks about how the mother of Sisera was looking for him to come back from the battle. And his own mother talks about, oh yeah, maybe, you know, they, they conquered Israel and Sisera would have, you know, him and his army would have a woman or two for each man. And the, and the, the Hebrew word there is pray that there's pray for each man. One or two pray. Now, in today's world, if we talk about men praying on women or predatory, what, what does that kind of conjure up? What type of 
What, what are you talking about there? What, what does that describe? Not very nice. Not very nice, bull, yeah. Yeah, some kind of, yes. Evil, yeah, evil. Some kind of evil. It's sexual abuse. Uh, some translations actually translate it as one or two women to rape for every man. So it's, it's one of those translation issues, but it literally it is, you know, women, there's women for the men to prey on, basically. So during this time, you know, yes, some people say, oh, the Bible is so violent, and how could God condone wiping out thousands of Canaanites? And the story of, as we'll, we'll see, you know, how Sisera died violently. Why would God do something like that? Isn't he a loving, caring God? It's like, well, there's another side to the story, you know. These people, these Canaanites, were not like your pleasant, friendly neighbors. They were ruling it over the Israelites. They were, they had some terrible practices. They sacrificed their children to their gods. It was okay for the men to just go and rape the women. They would just raid a village, rape the women, enslave them. So, you know, there's a, there's a uh, in, in, in the bigger world, even in our world today, there's always a moral dilemma. If you have a, a message of peace, which is the message of the gospel and the message of Jesus, is pacifism and peace and not fighting and not war. But what happens when nobody stands up to evil? <coughs> evil tends to rule and conquer and spread when nobody stands up to evil. And there's an important apologetic message in this as well. So that's another hermeneutic, another pair of glasses to put on when we read history passages like this. Okay, so that's some, a bit of teaching around the context uh, of, of this passage. So, Judges. This is Judges 4 or 5. Joshua has conquered the land. People forgot about God. There's no more leader. So Joshua, after him, the land is divided in 12 tribes. There's no king yet. The king comes later. Every tribe kind of does their own thing. What we see throughout the book of Judges now, and in the nation of Israel, there's a, there's a cycle, a pattern here. And in the beginning of Judges, it describes this pattern, which again is helpful in context for the rest of the book for, to help us to understand how this all works. And the cycle goes like this. If we start at the top there, I wonder if I can, yeah. So if we start at the top there and we go clockwise, what happens is at some point Israel disobeys. Then God gives them over to evil so they can be oppressed. And they're oppressed to the point, like in uh, Judges 4, we see that they were oppressed for 20 years. Now that is almost half a generation. That is like children get born. And by the age of 20, all they've ever known is oppression. They're oppressed for 20 years to the point where they cannot take it any longer and they cry out to God. Then God hears and God raises up a deliverer, a judge, a leader to come and lead the nation and free them from the oppression. If we go around the, uh, around the clock there, so God raises up someone, Israel gets delivered and freed from the oppression and then they're at peace. And what happens when people are at peace? They get comfortable. And what if we see the next generation forget about, oh yeah, we didn't see all those conquests. Now God helped us to overcome the oppressor. 
they fall back into sin, they start living their own lives again, they start doing evil things again, they get influenced by the world around them, and the cycle starts again at the top, where Israel starts disobeying, God gives them over to oppression, up to the point where they cannot handle it anymore, and they cry out and they say, God, please help us. And then the cycle goes around again. God said, that's the story of Judges, repeated over and over and over again. Um, and it, cover, it, it spans uh, a few hundred years where this cycle gets repeated. This important, you know, again, now we, we can say, oh, that's interesting history. But it's actually, if we think about how does that apply to our lives? How does it apply to our life as Christians? Or even if you're not Christians, or you're exploring the faith, or maybe you're a lapsed Christian. You used to believe, but your faith has kind of faded a bit. What happens? We start sinning a bit, then we sin a bit more, and then eventually we just give up and we give ourselves completely over to sin, and we push God aside, and we forget about God, and we, we drift away slowly but surely until God is kind of, oh yeah, I remember I used to you know, go to church, I used to read my Bible, I used to pray, but you know, that's all. I do other things now. Things, other things become more important. And then comes the oppression. What is oppression? No, not like some king that rule over us, but Satan oppresses us with our own sin. When we start, start suffering the consequence of our sin. And as we fall more, especially in repetitive sin, we suffer the consequence of it. And we sin and we feel the pain. And we sin and we feel the pain. And we sin and we feel the pain. Up to the point, maybe, hopefully, someday where we feel like, I can't handle this anymore. And we cry out to God and say, God, please help me. And maybe some of you have come to know God or come to Christ or became a Christian in this way. I know for myself, for example, before I became a Christian, my marriage was slowly drifting in the wrong way. And I uh, loved my wife. She loved me. We were very much in love when we were married. But after, what was it, about five years? Yeah, it was about five years. You know, things didn't go so well anymore, and I got other priorities, and I would rather take my paraglider and go flying for the weekend and spend my weekend with my wife. And, um, you know, and the word divorce started getting mentioned occasionally in, in arguments and fights. And, and, and I remember I sat one day on the mountain wanting to fly my paraglider, but the wind was too strong. Or I was waiting for wind. There was no wind or something, and then you can't fly. And I sat there and seemed like, ah. Oh, what is the meaning of my life? There must be more to life than this. And, and that next week, a friend of mine invited me to church with him and said, oh, you want to come to church with me? It's like, no, I fly over weekends. I'm not coming to church with you on Sunday. But uh, that's how it changed my life. I had to get to that point where I, I wasn't crying out to God, saying, God, please help. But I was kind of silently crying. I was like in... Oh, life doesn't make sense. Is this what life is about? Is this what my life... There must be more to life than this. That was my kind of thought process without even crying out to God and saying, of course, that's the answer. No. We cry out. God raises up a deliverer. And if you become a Christian, of course, that deliverer is Christ. And Christ became my deliverer who delivered me from my sin, from my evil, from, uh, from my life of sin and freed me from that oppression of Satan. And I got delivered. And, uh, and it brought peace in my life. That's the cycle. It's a cycle that's not just for a nation. 
but hopefully it happened in your life and hopefully the cycle stops at the peace peace point and doesn't go around again and again and it can that's that's the beauty of christianity it can stop at being at peace and if you haven't found that peace yet i want to encourage you it's possible reach out cry out to god because you can also find that peace that god gave to israel that christ came to give to, to each one of us anyway that's a little gospel message which wasn't in Plan to be part of my sermon, but anyway, <laughs> you've got it anyway. That's a freebie. So that's the pattern in Judges. That's helpful to understand. So we see that, oh, that's very small, I'm going to have to turn around. Um, we see it four times Judges, uh, judges uh, 3, Othniel, who was the first judge. Then the second time with Ehud, he's called the left handed judge. Then there came Shamgar, who was, uh, he's the one verse judge, there's only one verse about him. And then comes Deborah, the female judge. So, and that brings us to Judges 4. She's the fourth judge in that cycle. And then there's several more after that, if you're going to read through the book of Judges. So, let's get into Judges 4, the cycle pattern. We see the cycle right in the beginning, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, again, we start at the top of the cycle. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the previous judge died. After that, peace. The judge died. People like him, who was that Ehud guy? I don't know. Let's just get on with our lives and do our own thing. They started doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 2. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth, Hagayim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, and it cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. See the cycle? Same thing. 20 years of oppression, cruel oppression, crying to the Lord for help. And then what happens next? Cry for help. What does God do? Send the deliverer. Send the leader. Raise up someone. Okay, so that's the story. This is where we are now. Who knows the story of the story of Deborah, Barak, Yael, Sisera? How many of you know the story? A few. Okay, you know when 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 we had kids, uh, when our kids were younger, we still have kids. <laughs> when our kids were younger, we played this game where we kind of told the story. One, everyone added a sentence to the story. <laughs> so let's see if we can reconstruct the story. So uh, here's the story. Israel cries out to God. What does God? Who's the first character? What happens first in the story? Who knows? Who put their hand up? Sorry? Yes? The first, yeah, what's the first thing that happens? The first character in the story? Deborah, yes. We, 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 God says, here's Deborah. She was a leader, a prophetess, and God says, she, God gives Deborah a prophecy. And then what does Deborah do? Deborah sends for Barak. She says, Barak, come here. I've got a task for you. I have a mission for you. Should you choose to accept this mission? <laughs> the message won't self-destruct. It will be written down in the Bible for thousands of years. <laughs> so Barak comes to Deborah. And uh, she says, you need to, the God, the prophecy is God has given the people over into your hands. You need to go and fight Jabin. What happens next? What is, who knows what Barak says? 
Yes? I'll go if you come with me, yes. It's like in, oh, okay, so you're going to stay here and send me into battle? So no, no, you come with me. So Deborah says, okay, I'll come with you. But, you know, because you, uh, you, you ask for that, you're not going to have the claim to fame. So then what happens next? So they go into battle. And what happens? Who knows what happens next? They win. They win, yes. So, Barak, with his army of 10,000, and we assume Jabin, he had 900 chariots. So if we say about you know, 10 people per chariot, 10 soldiers per chariot, you know, that takes us to 9,000. So maybe roughly equally, equally, equally sized armies, except the Israelites didn't have any chariots. Um, they win. They completely destroy them. Except for, what's the next part of the story? What happens to Sisera, the, the, the commander of the Canaanite army? He legs it, yes. Sisera legs it. He gets off his chariot. He runs away. It's like, an, I'm not going to die in this battle. I saw 10,000 of my people die, 900 chariots destroyed. I'm going into hiding. So he runs away and he tries to hide. Where does he end up? Who knows? What happens next? Yeah, just before that? He finds a tent, yes. Yeah, of course. What do you do when you want to hide? You look for a tent. <laughs> You're hiding. So he finds a tent, and there's a woman there at the tent. And she was called? Jael. Yeah, Jael or Jael. So Jael is there, and she invites him in. So, of course, come and sleep in my tent. I can see you're tired. And he's like, man, I'm, I just came out of battle. I'm so thirsty. Can I have some water? And she said, oh, you know what? I've got even something better for you. I've got some nice milk for you. <laughs> and she gives him some milk. Why milk? It makes you sleep, yes. And it is not just a myth. It is actually, there's a chemical uh, compound in milk. That's why late at night, nice cup of warm milk does actually help you to fall asleep. And he falls asleep. And while he's sleeping, what does Jael do? <laughs> she takes her hammer and her peg, a tent pen, she takes a tent pen and a hammer while he's sleeping. She puts a tent pen against his, the side of his head, so he's like, maybe, maybe, you know, napping like this. Takes a tent pen here and bam, 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 hammers it through his head. I don't know how long the peg was, if she actually nailed it all the way into the ground or the pillow, or like in a bit of tricky laundry after that, but... Uh, <laughs> But she kills him. And so Jael eventually kills Sisera. So that's the story. It's a story of, uh, of, of men and women fighting and doing battle and leading and maybe have some conflict and, uh, and working together as well. What can we learn from this? Um, Deborah and Barak, who are the two main characters. Who was Deborah? So first thing is... She was commissioned to deliver Israel, but she was already a judge. So some judges were raised up at the times, like, in, like Gideon. He wasn't ready for this. God just said, no, you're going to lead them into the battle. It's like, what, me? No. Deborah was already a leader in the, in the nation. Um, she was a judge. It says, you know, people brought their difficult cases to her so she could, you know, figure out what's the right thing to do. Um, she, she was a leader. It says she was a leader in Israel. And uh, she was a prophetess. In uh, the poetry part, in chapter 5 or 7, she's called a motherly protector. 
Now, isn't that amazing? You know, there's, a, there, there, there's something about godly women, which is there's the nurturing, caring, loving side, but there is the, the sense of righteousness and protection that, uh, you know, w- women are incredibly protective of their children. And they will refuse to believe anything bad about their children as well sometimes. Like, you know, not my child. It's like Sisera's mother, you know, she was looking forward to him getting back from battle. And it's like, you know, oh, I wonder if he's, you know, he got some women. And it's like, what kind of mother thinks like that? But, you know, it's my son. You know, it's like it kind of a... But she was a... For me, that's a picture of a godly woman. Uh, a woman who is nurturing, caring but also has a sense of protection and righteousness. Um, Deborah wasn't a leader by default of not a man available to lead. So I think that's something else that sometimes, um, you know, she was already a leader at the time. She was clearly married. And we know from the Bible, her husband was uh, Lapidoth. So we know her husband's name as well. So, you know, she was like the modern family career woman. So that's who Deborah was, a motherly protector, a leader, and then she was a prophetess. What does that mean? God spoke to her to speak to the people. So that's how she was convinced and how she knew that they were going to win this battle. And when she called Barak, she didn't say, you know, I think we should go and fight them. She's like, you know, the Lord, God told me that you've already won the battle. That's the message of a prophetess. Who's Barak? In uh, chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, we see that Barak said to Deborah, if you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. And then Deborah said, certainly I will go with you. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So that's roughly the, the two pictures. Barak, again, he was already the commander of the Israelite army. So it's not like he had to be raised up. Now, over time, there's been two different ways of interpreting these two characters, this man, woman, and their interactions and relationship. Um, first of all, there's a traditional interpretation, which was around for a long time, which is, ah, Barak was a whip. You know, he wasn't strong enough. He wasn't a strong enough leader. You know, he wasn't a strong enough ruler. So he needed a woman to help him out. And I was like, okay, Barak. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll come with you to help you out. You know, that was kind of like in... That is one possible interpretation, but I think if we really read the scriptures and assess it all together, that's not quite what I see. Why do I say that? There's an alternative interpretation, and that is that Deborah and Barak, they work together in harmony, like we saw God's original intention for Adam and Eve, to work together in harmony, helping each other. Each has their own strengths and weaknesses, um, to working together to achieve God's will and God's desires. And how do we know that? We see in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 tells the whole chapter is all about the men and women of faith from the Old Testament as examples for us. And it says, these are the heroes of faith. And who do we read about in Hebrews 11? Not Yael, not Deborah, but in verse 32, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, you know, Barak is mentioned in the same list as Samson, Samuel, David. 
Verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. That's the kind of faith that Barak had. Barak was also a faithful man. You know, if someone just comes to you and says, hey, you need to go and fight that army of 10,000 people. It takes faith to say, okay, if that's the message from God, I accept that message, and by faith I will go and do as I'm asked to do. That's why Barak is mentioned as a man of faith, because it's through that faith that he conquered the kingdom of the Canaanites, that he was able to administer justice, that he gained the promised victory. So Barak certainly was no slouch. He wasn't a wimp. He was a man of faith. He already led a whole army. Um, I honestly believe this is a message of, of, of a, a male leader and a female leader working together in harmony to achieve the victory that God has promised to the nation. We also see in chapter 5 as 1, after the victory, Barak and Deborah together wrote a song. And the whole chapter 5 is a poem or a song, and it says in verse 1, On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. So it's not like they were kind of working against each other, like there was animosity, they were enemies, enemies. No, they, they were very connected. They made a great leadership team to the point where they wrote the song together, and they even sang it together after the victory. Oh, did I set off someone's, uh, <laughs> someone's Siri or, or whatever? I do Google. Um, verse, uh, in verse 12 of the song, for example, again, it, it mentions Barak and Deborah together. It says, wake up, wake up, Deborah, wake up, wake up, break out in song. Arise, Barak, take captive your captives, son of Abinoam. So again, the poetry, that one verse in the poem connects them together as working together to achieve, achieve the victory. So that's, uh, I think, in summary, in terms on the, of this topic around men and women, what I've learned from this passage about spiritual men, godly men and women. And if we think about our roles and our identity as men and women in the church, uh, I think there's some great lessons there. I think one of them is that, you know, it's about working together as uh, in, in leadership. And uh, you know, we have strengths, we have weaknesses, different strengths, different weaknesses. And where one has a weakness, the other can supplement that weakness. And then as a side point, Jael is mentioned in this poem or the song as well in chapter five, calling her most blessed of women be Jael. So she's called blessed because of that violent killing of, uh, of, um, of Sisera. Now, we can only speculate, and it is pure speculation. I'm just speculating as well. Why would Jael have done that? She was not an Israelite. Her husband, uh, as you read the passage, you'll see that her husband, the Canaanite, actually had a, an agreement, a peace agreement with King Jabin and the Canaanites. So they were not at war with the Canaanites. They were not oppressed by the Canaanites. So why, why did she do that? Why did she kill him? And my only thought would be that something happened, maybe in her life or in her family's life, where she knew what kind of man Sisera was. 
because we see in chapter 5 how Sisera's mother sings about him raping women in a kind of a, she's almost proud of it, you know, how he preys on women. Maybe Jael knew, maybe she even saw or experienced some of that kind of behavior where she said, this evil will end here today. Now, that's not in the Bible. That's my interpretation. It's speculation. I'm just trying to figure out why would she do something like that. And that for me is like, you know, that's a motive that makes a lot of sense to me. So she's called most blessed for that deed of, uh, of killing Sisera. She was a woman of courage, extreme courage. Those are the men and the women in the story. Um, and then finally, what can we learn about God? Because in the end, you know, all of this is actually about God. What can we learn about God? This is not just about men and women, but what we can learn from them. There's quite a lot. I think first important thing is who conquered the enemy? Was it a strong barrack? Was it uh, Deborah, the great judge and leader? Chapter 4, verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. There's the prophecy, the promise. And then, has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Like, Barak, God has already achieved his victory. And then in uh, verse 15, we read, At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. The Lord, by the sword, you know, did God come down with a sword and start killing all the, you know, we did read in another place in the Bible where he sent an angel to do that, but no. It was the army, but God was behind it. So who really conquered the enemy? It was God. And what we see here about God is that, well, God promises and he fulfills. When he makes a promise, he keeps his promise. We read about God that God will fight for us when we stand up for what is right. God will fight for us when we fight against evil. How about the evil or the sin in your own life? Are you trying to overcome it and fight it by your own strength, by willpower? When all we need to know is that God will fight that battle for us. When we're struggling to overcome, God is there when we call for him, when we call for help to fight that battle for us. Because he's the one that conquers. The victory is his. Chapter 5, verse 10 to, 10 to 11. The voice of the, singering, of the singers at the watering places, they recite the victories of the Lord, the victories of his villagers in Israel. Yes, it's the villagers, the people's victory, but it's the victories of the Lord. God is behind these victories. Thinking back, we're going to have communion now. Thinking back to that cycle, the cycle that we see in Judges. When I think about what do we learn about God here? God is incredibly patient. God will allow us to suffer the consequence of our sin. But it doesn't mean he ignores us. He's watching and caring all the time. He's waiting for us to call out to him for salvation, for redemption, to rescue us. That is a really hard thing. 
I know as a parent, I struggle with that sometimes. You see your children, you know, they're going to do something. Do you interfere? Do you not interfere? At what age do you stop interfering and let them live their own life? You know, as they get older, as they become adults, you kind of have to watch them fail. You can maybe warn them, but how many times do you warn them? How, how much do you intervene in their life? Or how much do you stand back and say, you know what, you're going to observe, love, feel the pain, but not interfere until they come and ask for help. That's a very tough thing. It's a very hard thing, but that's what God does. In South Africa, we have a saying, you know, when, the, when you're camping or when there's a pot on the fire, the saying is, you only need to tell the child once that the pot is hot. The pot will tell him the second time. <laughs> God is like, and how many times do I need to tell you? And then God says, you know what? I don't want to be a controlling God. I don't want to be a God that's micromanaging you. That enslaves you with a different kind of slavery than Satan's slavery. You know, there's two, there's, there's other kind of slavery, which is being a slave to the law. It's like in being afraid that, oh, if I do anything wrong, God's going to come down on me. It's like, God says, no, I told you what I expect of you. I'm taking a step back and I will patiently wait. I will watch with pain when you sin and you suffer the consequences of sin. But I will be there for you when you call for me. And I think that's a great message about, for me, what I learned about God in this, in this story. And when you have communion now, it is exactly the story of, the same story of that cycle, where as humans, we were oppressed by our sin. We cried out to God for deliverance. God sent us his son, Jesus, to redeem us from our sin on the cross. And save us from this oppression. And when they have the communion now, let us think about that. When, uh, when Jesus died on the cross, as we have the bread, represents his broken body, and the fruit of the vine that represents his blood, how that is just like the story of deliverance after Deborah and Barak from oppression to bring us peace.